0: We're spending the summer in the Psalms. We're halfway through. <laughs> the summer, that is, not the Psalms. It would probably take 20 years of summers to get all the way through the 150 Psalms, but we're working selectively through different sections, uh, trying to understand how this marvelous treasure at the center of our Bibles was used and understood. And one of the things we know about the Psalms is that uh, They were not primarily to be read in worship. They were sung. This was the hymn book of the ancient church. These were the songs that Jesus would have sung as a boy going for worship in the synagogue. These were the songs that he taught from as a man. These were the songs that he sung even in the dying moment of his life hanging on the cross. The Psalms are deeply emotional prayers. And I think that sometimes we modern people have this sense that that we understand emotion better than our predecessors. This is the age of psychology we 've plumbed the depths of human emotion we we 're in touch with ourselves, unlike those primitive ancients. But I read the psalms and i 'm not so sure actually. When you read through the Psalms, especially those who are kind of new to the Bible, they're often taken aback by just how raw the emotion is in there. I mean, take a look. If you have your Bibles, look with me at Psalm 3. Have a look particularly at verse 7. Doesn't it make you squirm just a little bit? Break their jaws. Smash the teeth of my enemies. (laughs) Our worship leaders, I put it to you. Set that to a nice lyric and bring that into worship. (laughs) If you're a a modern person, a modern citizen, we want to say in the face of that kind of sentiment, you know, David, you mustn't be angry like that. You must control your emotions. But the Psalms somehow are too real and too honest for that. Here's David saying, but I am angry. The emotions that he has are white hot and they're raw and they're intense. And we read them and if we're honest, it makes us just a little bit uncomfortable. As we've said each week, and as we'll say throughout the series, what the Psalms are doing is giving us a third way of dealing with emotions. The other two ways, and again, this is just by way of recap, for much of history, what goes under the guise of religion or religiosity, and this is true of most of the major world religious systems, has had a hard time dealing with human emotion. And so the approach is to act like it's not there. We're uncomfortable, strong emotion. And so the way we deal with it is by refusing to admit that it's there at all or by somehow pushing it down. The goal of religion is to squelch that part of who we are. On the other hand, in in this age, this era, a, a secular world, We're an emotionally enlightened people. We have this idea that that our feelings are somehow what's most honest and true about us. And the best way of determining what's right and good is to ask, how do you feel? If it's how I feel, how could it possibly be wrong? The free expression of emotion is seen almost like a good end in itself. The Psalms really aren't doing either of those things. They're not saying we should be under aware of our emotions, but nor are they saying we should be overawed by them. They don't say that we should be stuffing our emotions away, nor do they say we should be bowing down to them as if they're a supreme authority. You don't deny them and you don't just vent them. What the psalm writers are doing is taking them in all of their honesty and offering them to God in prayer. They're praying their way through the emotions And they're not just offering some nicely manicured, well-managed, polished, polite, theologically correct prayer. They're just pouring them out raw as they come into the presence of God. So you don't just vent them and you don't just stuff them. You express them by giving them to God in prayer. This morning we're going to deal with one of the most, probably the most primal, of all the emotions. I've seen three babies born in my life. My three. They all came out doing the same thing. Crying. <laughs> what do the tears mean? Were they tears of doubt? That's one of the emotions we looked at in this series. Babies coming out say, I-, I don't know about this. <laughs> yeah. Are they tears of sorrow, of grief? We talked about that emotion last week. Maybe, maybe too complex an emotion for a baby. Not sorrow, grief, not yet. There's a more primary emotion than doubt, more primary than grief or sorrow. That first sound, that first wail is a cry of fear. I mean, the baby comes out. Where are the walls? The, the nice, warm, comfortable, watery embrace of my mother's womb. Why is it so cold? Why is there a finger in my mouth? Who's grabbing me? Who smacked me? What's going on? It's all new. It's the way we come into the world. Fear may be the first and the most primal of all the emotions. And here we have it in Psalm 3. Have a look again. David genuinely has something to be afraid of. Literally armies pursuing him, trying to trap him or kill him. Right in the middle, what does he say in verse 6? I will not fear. I sleep even in the midst of all of these armies. He's found a way of working through fear so that he's able to handle it. So I just want to ask two simple questions with you this morning as we dig into Psalm 3. The first, what is it that we learn about fear? And what is it that we learn about how to handle it? The answer is, the psalm talks about two different levels of fear and give us, gives us at least three steps out. so Two levels down, three steps out. Very practical, very, very simple. Uh, you have notes on the back of your order of service. If it helps, you're welcome to flip to those and follow along. The two levels of fear, two levels down. You find them in the very first two verses of the psalm. See where it says, how many are my foes? This is David praying. How many are rising up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Two levels of fear. Let me show you what I mean. How many of you in your Bibles or on your devices have a heading? Psalm 93 and then a note or Psalm 3 and then a note about the psalm itself. You have a heading in there. And what does the heading say? Yeah. This is a prayer offered by David when his son Absalom had risen up against him in a coup. This is the son overthrowing the father. Absalom had declared himself as king. David runs off into the wilderness. He's fleeing for his life. He'd been deposed as king, and now there is an army pursuing him to imprison or to kill him. So David's first experience is right there in verse 1. Many, many are my foes. I mean, sometimes paranoid people are right. They really are all out to get you. That's the case for David here. Everybody's after me. Tens of thousands of people are after me. And he's right. The first level of fear is right there. It's it's the fear of physical attack or physical peril. They're there to imprison him. They're there to kill him. But look onwards in verse two. Here we have something deeper. This is a level down. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. that verse probably doesn't make a lot of sense until you read it in the context of kingship. They're saying this about the king, God's anointed representative on earth. So they're not just attacking his body. Now they're attacking his identity, his calling. They're saying something about his character. Now, maybe you wonder, well, what does that teach us? I uh, I'm not a potentate of a small Middle Eastern nation. I don't aspire to be. That's not in my career path. Let me show you how this is relevant for us. The middle of the 20th century, there was an awful lot of work being done by philosophers, by psychologists, by doctors. The research was in the area the area of anxiety. W.H. Auden wrote a famous poem, came out in 1947. He coined the phrase the age of anxiety, and it stuck. There was this consensus that was building that that our generation had more anxiety disorders than any of our ancestors did. And at the time, they made a pretty sharp distinction between fear, on this side, and anxiety. I'm not sure you can completely separate the two, but let me show you what the distinction looked like. This is a writer named Rollo May. Some of you studied him in university, I'm sure. (coughs) He said, imagine you're walking across a highway. Why you'd be doing that, I don't know. But imagine you're walking across a highway. You see a car speeding towards you. Your heart starts beating faster. You focus your eyes on the distance between you and the car. How far you have to go to get safe to the other side of the road. And you race across. And as you do so, you feel fear. Then he goes onward. Long after the cars have sped by. And you're safe on the other side. You may be aware of a slight faintness of feeling or a hollowness in the pit of your stomach. That's anxiety. Anxiety is what you feel when your existence as a self is being threatened. Here's his point. He says, you know, there is a healthy kind of fear. But then there's this deeper, unhealthy, debilitating thing. Anxiety. The first thing which he calls fear is healthy. It's specific, it's constructive. Fear triggers something in your autonomic nerve system. It gives you an enormous burst of physical energy, it gives mental clarity. It's almost like time slows down for a few moments. It helps you summon up your deepest capacities. Fear is specific, it's constructive, it gets you together, it galvanizes you for action. In that sense, it's a good thing. But then there's another, another kind, another level down. And Rollo May is right when he says it's a deeper thing. What he calls anxiety. Unlike fear, he says, it's not specific. It's diffuse. It's kind of generalized and amorphous. It's, it's undefined. You don't know what's going on. You don't know why you feel this way. You just know that you do. With fear, you, you know in the moment that it's rooted in the fact that there's a car barreling down on you. With anxiety, you don't know exactly what's going wrong. It's not specific. It's diffuse. Fear has a way of, again, of galvanizing you for action. But anxiety, this deeper thing, it debilitates. It paralyzes you. It makes you unable to act, unable to make decisions. And what researchers are finding is that while fear may be a good thing, like a thunderstorm that passes through, there's thunder, there's lightning, then it moves away and the sun comes out and everything is greener for it. This deeper thing, this anxiety, is not like a thunderstorm of fear. It's sort of like a cold, wet drizzle where it's always eight degrees and gray, like England, Jade. No, <laughs> and after a while, your soul just starts to get covered in mildew. If you're always agitated, always nervous, always upset, always kind of restless or scared, it means that your autonomic nervous system is always on. We know that's bad for you physically, ulcers and high blood pressure, and and really you're literally getting eaten away on the inside. What causes it? It's not just an immediate threat to your physical well-being. It's not just a threat to your life. It's a threat to, to your sense of self. Anxiety comes when something that you have put your security in, your identity in, something that makes you feel like you're in control, it gets eaten away. In that sense, it has, it has more spiritual roots to it. Let's go back to Psalm 3. Have a look with me. David's going, go, going through lots of things at the same time. He's sinking under the weight of it all, crying out now from the bottom of the pit. What does he do? Look at verse 3. There are three things from verse three to the end that he does. But verse three starts with a very important word. Whenever you're having any trouble with emotions, I'm scared, I'm depressed, I'm angry, I'm filled with doubt, I'm guilty. Whatever your feelings are, the first, verse, the first word in verse three is really important. But. But. He's saying, I'm scared, but. That's not all that I am. I'm going to do something. He's turning. And he does three things, three steps out. And there they are in verses 3 to 8. And I'll tell you what they are, and then we'll work our way through them quickly. Go forward, relocate your glory, and see the substitute. What do we mean by those things? First, go forward. Look at verse 3. It says, but you were a shield for me, in verse 3. But it doesn't say that, does it? But you were a shield to me? doesn't say that either. What does it say? You are a shield around me. Very telling phrase. Two different kinds of shields we can talk about here. I'm no expert in ancient armory, but I know what commentators who spent far more time researching history have said. There's that little shield that you put on your arm, right? And you use it to block or to parry. Somebody comes at you, you block it with the shield, and then you counter and you thrust block, and thrust. But in no sense is that little shield around you. There's another kind of shield common in ancient warfare. It's the size of a door. It's massive, and it's heavy. And you didn't bring it into a skirmish. You brought it when you were following your general into a siege. When you had to move up against the castle wall and you knew that they were going to be dumping hot oil or throwing rocks or pelting you with arrows or spears. As you were following your general, moving forward, this massive door-sized shield was literally around you. David says, I'm scared, I'm I'm scared, but but I remember that you are a shield around me. He's not saying, Lord, I know you don't let bad things happen to me, because clearly bad things were happening. He's saying, I'm scared, but I know that when you take me into danger, as I follow you into danger, you are around me. But here's the thing about that shield. It only works if you're going forward. It doesn't work when you turn and run. It doesn't work when you quit and lie down. He will protect you, but you have to be willing to follow the Bible says obedience to God is a hard thing. Cuz often it means he takes you in places that you won't understand. The first thing David's doing here is grabbing hold to that idea. Says, "Listen, this is what I know. I'm scared. And bad things are happening. But God's protection is around me and it works if I'm going forward. If I'm following him. It doesn't work backwards." God's protection only works going forward. Here's what he does next. What does he say? Literally, the second part of verse three says, you are my glory and you are the lifter of my head. Now, why would he say that? Why why say you are my glory unless for a while, at least something else had been what's going on? He's experienced this deeper deeper level of fear, this anxiety. Why? Why? Because everything that he had built his identity and his security on, the things that that contributed to his emotional and psychological well-being, they'd been stripped from him. What are those things? Here's a man who'd said, I'm a king. I'm a popular king. But not anymore. He might have said, I'm a good father. But somehow the good fatherhood illusion comes crashing down when your own son is out to kill you. Maybe he thought, I have this great moral record. But then you think back, uh, adulterer, murderer. Boy, there's some bad fruit in the family tree. I had power, but no more. And so here's a man who's admitted something. Everything that had given him purpose and identity, everything that had been the source of glory in his life, was now at peril had been stripped away. What's glory? Uh, I mean, the word glory means literally weight. This is the weighty stuff of our lives, significance. And so what he's saying is that, that these things, that they might have been good things, these things that gave weight and significance to my life, they're gone. And it's not that it's, it's a bad thing to be talented or good at something or have a spouse that loves you or to, to be charged with the responsibility of caring for kids. All of those things are good. But if you locate the weight, the significance, the glory of your life in those things alone, what you've done is put your worth and your glory in something finite. And if it's something finite, something you could lose, something that could be taken from you, you will always live in fear. David realized what he'd done. The first step going forward shield around you, suck it up, but that's not enough. Now he's examining what's inside and saying, why am I still like this? So so filled with anxiety, why am I scared? I've placed my glory in the wrong things. When you get that kind of anxiety, it's not enough just to stuff your feelings away and try and go on, what many of us try and do. Your anxiety is like smoke, and if you follow the trail, it will lead you to fire. And what you'll find there is something finite in your life that's being burned away. And that brings anxiety. And so David says, I'm going to relocate my glory. It's not in their approval. It's in your approval. It's not in serving them. It's in serving you. It's not in seeking their love. It's in your love. And then when he says, you're the lifter of my head, it's an amazing statement, right? Even today, we know what that means. When somebody lifts up their head, that's... That's worth and dignity and pride. Somebody else does it for you. It's a way of saying, I'm proud of you. You can hold your head high. You're worthy. Lord, you are the lifter of my head. Here's what David's saying. I have your approval. And Lord, if I know that you're proud of me, then I don't have to be anxious. I may go through times of fear, but not this deeper thing. Not this anxiety. And then there's a third thing. This is this is really important. Here's why the third thing. See the substitute. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's ask this question. How in the world does David know that God is proud of him? And that would be hard to say, especially given David's history, murder, adultery, deceit. But here's David and he's saying it and he's saying it boldly. I failed you in lots of ways, but I know you are the lifter of my head. And I know you honor me. And I know the knowledge that you're proud of me is the glory of my life. But how does he know that? I mean, that's the issue. Really, that's the key to the song. Because you realize that if you knew that, that the heart of your identity, uh, that nothing could really scare you to death. You're only scared to death to the degree that you put your glory in something that can die. So How does he say this? There's a hint of it in verse 4. Have a look. But in some way, the whole psalm is a hint. What does he say there in verse 4? I will cry to you. He doesn't just say that. I will cry out to you and you will hear me. But he doesn't just say that. I will cry out to you and I have confidence that you will hear me. Why? Because of your holy mountain. What's on the holy mountain? Ah. Students of Old Testament history, the tabernacle. What's the tabernacle? This is the central place of worship for the people of God. What happened there? That's where they felt the love, the faithfulness of God. That's where the promises that he made to them were made true. And most importantly, that's where the sacrifice happened that assured them that God's provision and protection was constant in their lives. And David still didn't know what you and I know. But at least he knew in some general way that God has a way of dealing with what's worst in us so that he can see and celebrate what's best in us. And how does God do it? Centuries later, darkness comes down on another holy mountain, this time on Calvary. And there's Jesus Christ, as Isaiah said, cut off from the land of the living. That's how we know that, that he loves you and I that he values us, that he cherishes us, that he's proud of us. And to the degree that that's sunk down and become the thing upon which your life is based, to the degree that that's your glory, to that degree you will be impervious to the debilitating kind of fear that has so characterized this age of anxiety. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, help us to be honest in these moments. Honest with ourselves, honest with our feelings. But more than just being honest, we want to know what to do next. So more than just honesty... Give us the courage to take those feelings honestly before you. To work our way through and pray our way through with the assurance that that we can move forward boldly. Knowing that you surround us. We pray God that that in our lives we would feel you at work. That the assurance of of your provision for and your pride in who we are would be the source of our lasting glory. We want to make you the center of our lives, of our will, of our purpose, of our identity. Will you be our all and all? And now God be with us as we come to a a table that, that really marks and honors what it means to call you the substitute and the glory of our lives. Join us here, we pray. Amen.